Our gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Today's text comes again from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is up there on what many believe is the beautiful Mount Eremos with his growing band of followers who are straining to hear his every word, eager to understand what this new way of living is all about. So imagine this group of people. There are no microphones or bullhorns. 
no sophisticated sound systems or big screen projection of his preaching, just the voice of Jesus echoing from the hilltop. Did people pass along his words one to another? What did he say about anger? What is it he's preaching about reconciliation? These were new and radical teachings for the times. Now Jesus' teachings recognize the law, the Torah, but they take it one or even several steps further into the realm of personal responsibility and personal family and communal relationships. Jesus tells his followers that what is in their heart counts before others and before God, that we are sinning if we so much as have angry or lustful thoughts towards another. I didn't even realize when I was writing, when I chose the lectionary reading and was writing this sermon that it's Valentine's Day this coming week. Um, and I saw the heart on the front of the, uh, the bulletin, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is all about the heart after all. So in these teachings, and there are, depending on how you look at it, six or eight of them in all these you-have-heard-it-said teachings, um, we have here five of them today in today's reading. And Jesus addresses a range of situations of human brokenness, murder, anger, and the desire, if unfulfilled, to murder, insults and name-calling, legal disputes, adultery, lust, divorce, empty promises and oaths. These are the stories of so many families, aren't they? perhaps the hidden or unspoken things that take place. But nevertheless, most families or communities suffer from some kind of broken relationships, deep-seated hurts that can damage generations. Such things may not be the subjects of lawsuits or police investigations, but even so, they can cause untold damage to many people and keep us from the wholeness that God would have us experience. I'm going to tell a story from my own family of origin. I grew up in my early years with the understanding that my family was a family of four, mom, dad, and we two sisters. A young man known to me as Uncle Norman was often at our home. Now, I had many uncles and aunts and didn't question what the blood relationships or otherwise were. As I grew older, I learned that Norman was actually my half-brother, my dad having been married and divorced before he married my mother. Norman became a police officer and married a lovely young woman, Ethel, a musician, they had four children, and we visited the family quite often when I was young. Now, there was always tension in the car on the way home from these visits. But being a child, I paid little attention to the source. At some point, and with no explanation, 
the visit stopped. And we no longer saw Norman and his lovely family of three girls and one boy who was called Frank after my father. As adults, my sister and I made a, made a few attempts to talk to our parents about what had happened, but we both met close-lipped silence on the matter. Then outright hostility the one time we suggested contacting Norman. Perhaps, we felt, it was best to let the past be and not upset our now frail and elderly parents. I did not even know the source of this terrible brokenness between father and son. Only that it caused so much pain that it couldn't be spoken of. And so we let the matter lie and life became busy with our own families and careers. I heard nothing about my half-brother or his family for close to 30 years. One day in 2006, I was at work in my office at the First Presbyterian Church in Gainesville, and I opened my business email to find an unusual message. Are you the Ruth Ellswood who used to live in Manchester, England. It was from my nephew, Frank. Now, although he is my nephew, he's only five years younger than I am, and it's now since become quite a joke between us as this wonderful grandfatherly man refers to me as his dear old Auntie Ruth. So, In 2006, Frank had decided that he wanted to heal the brokenness that existed within the family. He had heard all his life about the terrible rift between his father and mine, between father and son, of the lack of acceptance by my mother of her stepson, of the time father and son passed each other by on the street without a word or a sign of recognition. But Frank was focused on healing and reconciliation. Now, he didn't shy away from telling me about these hurts between father and son, because such things have to be brought out into the open if healing is to occur. But Frank's ultimate goal was to expand the circle of caring that he had created in his own family. Frank and his wife, Jill, have three of their own children and two whom they adopted when Jill's sister and her husband tragically died. They have more grandchildren and step-grandchildren than I can keep track of, and each one has been a joy and a blessing to them. Frank regards my family as an added blessing, and he practically killed the fatted calf when I visited England with Lon for the first time in 2014. And if you want to experience the uh, Northern English version of the fatted calf, by the way, it's a huge family gathering with everybody there in a wonderful British pub. Sadly, the rift between me and my brother still remains. Despite a number of attempts on my part and on Frank's to bring us together, the hurt between father and son was too great, and tragically, 
lasts beyond the grave. But Frank's determination to bring wholeness out of brokenness is indeed a holy undertaking and has brought profound joy to my family, and I know it has done the same for him. He came to see us during our visit to England in October last year. My sister and I wanted to give him something that had belonged to our father, his grandfather, something that would mean a lot to him. As a successful businessman, he has no financial needs, so we agreed to give him one of the many prizes that my father won on the bowling green. It was a pewter tea set, by now an antique. When we gave it to Frank, he was so moved that he shed tears and he could barely speak. Frank's healing, his healing intentions, and his desire for reconciliation rather than holding grudges and fostering resentment have enriched many lives. It is surely the way of Jesus and what Jesus intended when he urged reconciliation before we lay our gifts at the altar of God. While my nephew's desires and actions were well thought out and carried out over time, small healings can have impacts on lives also. This week, Lon and I attended a meeting about the work of the Baker Interfaith Friends, a group who visit people detained under immigration law at the Baker County Detention Facility. I hope to tell you more about this work after we go with this group on a visit tomorrow. By the way, the group encourages, encourages others to visit too, so let us know if you want to come along tomorrow or at a subsequent visit that we make. Sometime into this meeting, while introductions were going on, there was a rather awkward moment. We each introduced ourselves and gave the name of the church that we were affiliated with. One woman said she had no church affiliation, and another added that a couple of the visitors were atheists. A silence, a short silence ensued, a rather awkward moment, but it was very brief. Joan, who is a Lutheran and who is chairing the meeting, quickly and calmly stated, we believe that it is God's work that we are doing. We know that God can do good through all kinds of people, so we welcome everyone to join with us. Now this could have been a moment of tension, even of dispute or disagreement. Can non-believers participate in this interfaith endeavor? But the intent of the work to bring God's healing to people who are seemingly discarded and forgotten, it must be focused on wholeness, not brokenness. And Joan quickly restored God's purpose of wholeness to our meeting. In order to achieve wholeness, Jesus says that not only our actions, but our thoughts, our hearts, must be turned toward love, 
reconciliation, purity of motive, deep respect for the other person. For if I so much as regard another as a fool, if I think thoughts that see another person simply as an object of desire rather than a whole person, if I harbor anger and resentment in my heart, then I am not following the sacred way of Jesus Christ. This is hard, my friends. It's not easy to do. I don't know about you, but I would really rather not, at times, have Jesus see inside this heart of mine. Sometimes there are thoughts and feelings there that I'm ashamed of, that I would prefer not to have, and certainly prefer that others, let alone God, should not see. But this is the whole point of Jesus' teaching. Be aware of those feelings. We all have them. We know that even Jesus got angry when he overturned the tables in the temple. Be aware of them and be in control of them. Recognize anger when it arises and use prayer to overcome it. Be aware of discord with a sister or a brother and make moves to resolve it before it gets in the way of your relationship with God. Above all, do not feed these destructive forces, but pay attention to the wholeness of the person you are dealing with in all situations. Do everything in your power to heal brokenness and restore wholeness. In the time that Jesus walked upon this earth, there was so much brokenness. There was brokenness within the Jewish faith where people felt oppressed by tithing requirements. There was brokenness imposed by the Romans who knew that to divide was to conquer. People must have felt that the life was being sucked out of them, their families, their community. Jesus gives them a way to restore wholeness even when the world itself is broken. Refusing to live with anger or resentment or jealousy, destroying one's peace of mind, allows us to be free, to turn our hearts to others and to God. William Barclay wrote about this very state of mind back in the 1960s. He calls it serenity. He writes, there should be in the Christian a calm, quiet, unhurried, and unworried strength, which is the opposite of the feverish and fretful inefficiency of the world. As we think about serenity, the serenity prayer comes to mind. It's the prayer of 12-step programs, those life-changing programs that help lift people from destructive addictions to a life centered on God. 
People and families who struggle with addictions often struggle too with much brokenness and all these life-destroying emotions that Jesus speaks about. And the antidotes are right here in Jesus' teachings. Will you say the serenity prayer with me as we end this sermon? You should have a copy of it that you got with your bulletin today. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Amen. And now let us stand as we're able and say the Apostles' Creed as an affirmation of our faith.